1: I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. It's an honor and pleasure to have you with us again. Our guest this week is Aaron Stark. After growing up in painful, abusive conditions, Aaron went on his his way to an atrocity as he planned a deadly shooting spree on his Denver, Colorado high school until simple acts of kindness changed his life forever. His TED talk, I was almost a school shooter, has more than 14.4 million views. Today, His mission is to let people know that no matter how dark it may seem, there is light coming and that we really are not alone. Aaron Stark, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you for having me. No, we appreciate your time today. Aaron, you have such a shocking and poignant story, and yet, sadly, one that's more common than we'd wish. You described your early childhood as extremely chaotic and violent. What or who was the cause for that trauma?
2: It was my both the mostly my family and then the environment that family created my early life from birth to five i described like living in a stephen king movie extreme violence of every kind when it, with my birth father um every kind of abuse you could possibly imagine and i witnessed it and was part of it it's every kind of abuse if you think of how bad it could be it was that and then from five on, it my mom left, my father got with my stepdad, and it went from Stephen King to more like Scarface with crack cocaine and crime. And this was during the height of the crack epidemic. And they, we, we were very nomadic. We moved from place to place a lot. Early on, it was from running from my father. Then it was getting evicted. Then it was running from police or authorities or anybody trying to get and investigate us. And so I went to 30 or 40 different schools, I never stayed at a school longer than six months. I was constantly the new kid constantly getting bullied by all the different groups of bullies at school. And it didn't help that I was dirty and fat smelly and I didn't have clean clothes. I was, I was the dirty, toxic kid. And as I, as I grew into my early adolescence, I kind of adopted that as a, as a survival mechanism. Like I became the toxic one in order that the, the, my family all lied and stole and, and, and fought to get what they wanted. So I just, I, I did that. I, I spoke that same language of anger and it, the, uh, as I grew into 10, 11, 12 years old, I became really, I became the dirty toxic one. Like I became the fat, smelly, angry kid. And that was who I was like that. That was my personality. And if you at that time came into me and told me that, no, you're a good kid then obviously you're lying. You don't know who I am. And as that grew older, that just that that toxicity at home just fed my own negative self-image. And that combination just spiraled and spiraled and spiraled until I was in my teens. And by this point, by the time I'm 15 years old, I've been homeless for a couple years already because I couldn't live at home with all the drunken, drugged-out fighting. So I was living on the streets bouncing from place to place. And <clears throat> I was, I had taken to cutting myself. I, I described my life back then. Like I was living in a giant tsunami of pain, just this big, like, like giant, it was, I didn't really have any agency or any control over my, my existence. I was kind of living in the, whatever. I didn't have any control over where I lived. didn't have control over what I ate. I didn't have control over where I slept. It was all just kind of dealing with the anger and anguish around me. And I felt like I was just sloshing back and forth and sadly cutting myself actually became a a normalizing thing like it it, it was a grounding in a way it, it was it was my emotions that I could control myself and even though it was destructive when you're when you're living in that kind of misery it just becomes your normal and i so i coming up to 16 17 years old i was i was really really bad i was cutting myself extremely bad and i was i was living in the shed behind my only friend's house i i, I had pushed away a lot of my other friends i didn't really have a lot of friends in teen years i called these i got to back up to slightly because i had uh, I, what i call disaster groupies there were kids that lived around me that they weren't really friends they just kind of like saw me as like a dark unicorn they wanted to push farther into the dark like, see how far they could push me and they wanted to like live vicariously through my own damage and when we would sit around and talk it, instead of talking about girls or sports or movies we'd talk about killing people we talked if, if you were going to kill 10 people what would you do if you were going to shoot up a school what would you do And looking back, it seems like it was a bunch of really depressed kids trying to navigate depression without any adult supervision or any kind of rudder at all. But at the time, it was like a really toxic in-person internet group, is the way to look at it. Like just, just pushing the toxicity further and further, boiling away any bit of humanity. And so that was the environment that I was in from around 14 to 16, 17 years old. And... Then it culminated finally when I was in my only friend's shed, and I was sleeping in his shed because his parents wouldn't let me be in his house anymore. And he would sneak me out food. And his name was Mike. He he lived to the opposite end of the house, of a block that I did when when I was twelve. We met when I was twelve. He was ten. fonded over comic books. He was lived the exact opposite life that I did. Like he had a very stable family, very loving. The, the, his parents still live there today. Like they're all of his, he went to college and all of his dreams were supported like that kind of very, just normal, happy life. And so it was his shed that I was sleeping. I was in, and I was cutting myself so bad that I had a giant pool of blood underneath me. And I thought, if I don't do something, I'm going to die. I got to get myself some help. And so I actually got up the next morning and called social services on myself I knocked on my, his back door and got a phone book from his mom. Called social services on me, and they set a meeting up for that day. And so it was that was dawn that I called, but the meeting was later in the afternoon. So we, by the time they get, I get there, I borrow a bus fare to get there. It was cross town, and they also brought my mom in. And so they sat me down at a table with all the social workers and like, so what's your problem? And I tell them that. I produce a bloody razor blade and I throw it on the table. I'm like, this is my problem. I feel like I'm nothing. And they, my mom got them to believe I was making it all up. They sent me home with her because they, she got them to believe that I was just doing it for attention. And so we pull away from this place and she turns to me and she snarls and says, next time you should do a better job and I'll buy you the razor blades. And I just, Okay you think I'm a monster before I'm going to dive into it. Now I went on what I call my scorched earth time. Like the next, next nine months of my life were just as much destruction as I could get into that time. If I, if I, if you were positive to me at all, I was going to do everything I could to offend and destroy that relationship. I was going to be as toxic as possible and burn every bit of positivity in my world. down. And in that time I did stuff like I went into my family's houses and, burned all my pictures and like tried to eliminate my own past. And after nine months of burning my world down, I was alone. This time I'm in the field behind Casa Bonita, the, the restaurant from South, from South Park. You ever watch the show South Park? They did a whole episode on that show. I'm not at the restaurant. And so it's, I was behind that restaurant, sleeping in the field and it was the middle of the night And I'm like, I got to do something. I I had no supports left. I burned every bit of support I had left. And I'm like, I got to do something or I'm going to die. If I don't give myself help, I'm going to die. And so across the street from my school, I was nominally at, there was a place that said mental health. And I didn't really know what it was. I just knew it said mental health. And so I went there cold. I knew that last time I went, I I warned somebody, they brought, that was, this ended so bad. That was the most toxic thing that ever happened to me. So I went there cold and just went to see somebody. And I went and saw a young lady and she was early twenties, I believe. And she, she, I don't really remember much of that conversation. Cause all I remember is the end it was when she said, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. I can't help you. And I walked out that door and my brain broke. Like at that, that spot right there, when I walked out that door into the night, my, I felt my brain shatter like a mirror and I found out what was underneath all that tsunami of pain. When you go all the way down to the bottom of it, it gets really quiet and still because there's not anything left to care about. And there's nothing left to lose. And right there, all my plans crystallized. I already knew what I was going to do. Like I already talked about it with all those disaster friends. I was either going to go in and attack my school food court or the mall food court. And the only difference in that was going to be the time of day I got the gun. I was, and I knew where to get a gun, because this was mid '90s. There was gangbangers all over the place, and this was pre days where there was metal detectors in schools. So they would come and bring, bring guns into the school and flash them all the time. And so I knew where to get one, and they knew I wasn't a narc. Of course, I slept in the field, and they they saw me in the park, and they so I went to him like, "Hey, can you get me a gun? Hopefully, one that shoots a lot of bullets." And the guy was like, "Yeah, sure. Get me three. Get me an ounce of weed." And I'm like, "All right." That was the easiest part because this was mid nineties. So my, I just went to my brother's friends and sleeping on my mom's floor, stole one out of his pocket, took it to the guy and he was like, all right, dude, give me three days. And that was it. I was set. And as soon as I got that, I was going to attack. And so in that time I was, I think I was saying goodbye. I don't really remember I, looking back. I think I was saying goodbye. Like I was closing off relationships and being much more nice and much more friendly and giving away my comic books, which is the only things I ever cared for, stuff like that. And I went to Mike's house and he opened the door and he saw, he didn't know what I had planned at all. He still didn't know till I came out with my story. He didn't know what I had planned, uh, but he saw the pain that I was living in. It was his shed that I was sleeping in. It was his, uh, he was sneaking me down food. He saw for years that he he, he knew what I was going through. <clears throat> he brought me in and he was like, dude, you're going to be okay. He used to tell me you're a good kid in a crap world. And it, he, he sat me down and he had, he, he gave me food and it was, it was like reestablishing the tiniest bits of being a person. Like it wasn't hanging out with a friend. It was actually we being reminded like, Oh, I can like things. Like I can enjoy food. Like I can, I can like a movie, like just, just reestablishing the bare minimum of humanity that I can exist and enjoy things. Because at the time I thought I was just a walking ball of destruction. I was just ready to blow up and die. And like, it was just part of the plan. I was just going to, Everything was going to blow up and I was going to blow up with it. And that was, that was going to be the end. And it like pushed back the wave of destruction, like set the clock back on my humanity. And he, it was the most, he treated me like I was a person when I didn't even feel human. And it was the most cathartic thing that ever happened to me. Dude, still my best friend to this day.
1: He talked about early abuse and every type of abuse Was it from your father, from your mother, from both, from neighbors?
2: It was my mother and father, my birth father a lot. My birth father, there was a lot of abuse. Like, we had the very first permanent restraining order ever issue in Colorado was on him. Like, I have memories of walking into the kitchen and seeing him raping my mom, him hiding under the table when we got home from the grocery store and jumping out and attacking her. Like, just the lots and lots of extreme... Physical, mental, sexual, every kind of abuse. But that's birth to five. So my, the very first memory of my entire life, the where I start in my life, is me laying on my bloody mom's body while I looked up at my father while he has a tire iron in his hand. And I'm screaming, you just killed my mom. Now, she wasn't dead, but I thought she was. And that's where I start. That's, that's zero for me.
1: That's a hell of a place to start from. H- had your father ever been diagnosed with mental illness? He
2: was a Vietnam vet. So my father, by the, the story that I know is by the time that I was born, I was born in 79. And he came back in, I think, 76, 77. And by the time he got out of the military, he was a monster. He, went, he, came, he left a nice guy, from what my mom said, and came back just a demon. And it was just, I never, I don't know if he ever got, got uh, um, diagnosed cause I don't, I didn't have any contact with him as I grew older. I, last time I saw him was when I was 15. And I told him that if I ever saw him, that'd be the last time he ever saw me. And that was I, ever since then, I just, I don't, I can't, that's too
1: toxic. You described the relationship between your mother and your father What kept your mother from leaving him?
2: I think it was codependency and fear. So with my father, it was blatant physical fear. Like he tracked us down and kidnapped me and my brother and would beat her and follow her. Like he was actual physical terroristic fear of my birth father. Of my stepfather, it was codependency. It was it was feeding each other's addiction feeding each other's de- depression and and that that kind of and, and the crack epidemic when crack crack is a terrible drug and that causes not only does it cause extremely toxic trauma bonds but it causes very very toxic um um codependent relationships
1: you told unsinkables jody caro during an interview for a story that she wrote about you that quote whenever anybody would get too close or we'd get evicted, or someone would get caught with something, we'd just vanish and end up in another state, end quote.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Two-part question. What does a lack of stability, moving from place to place, I think you said you're in 40 different places or 40 schools, and being uprooted, sometimes without any warning at all, due to a child's self-esteem and sense of security? And then the second part, how do other children tend to treat the new kid who looks at a place and doesn't quite fit in? So
2: yeah, that's, that absolutely happened to me a lot. There was multiple times in my life where I got a duffel bag thrown at me in the middle of the night saying, you have 15 minutes, grab everything you can. We're getting out of here. And that's the time that I would just grab my comic books. I would just take those and go. And I think that the effects that that has are drastic and long lasting. It gives a sense of, of impermanence. I I thought that I was nothing. Like by the time I was a teen, I would walk around and ask my my people around me do you remember me if i leave the room if i if i walk away do you you remember that i was here and i thought that i was a void like that that you you lose the sense of permanence the sense of of ownership over anything like the stuff nothing i had my my parents were criminals in the sense that they would steal my my stepdad would rob delivery trucks like they're going to toy stores they would literally take the entire shipment off the toy truck and Go and sell it at the flea market So there were times where I would have a Christmas Where I would go into the living room And have every single Thundercats toy or every single He-Man toy Including all the all the playsets and everything, like all of it Like the whole shebang If you would have spent money on it, it would be hundreds of dollars In toys, but then three days later Someone would throw a duffel bag at me and say You have five minutes to grab your stuff The only thing I would have time to grab are my comic books so All that stuff would vanish None of that had any meaning or any permanence none of the material stuff mattered because none of it was going to stay. It was all going to go away. And if we went to a house and I liked the house five, three months later would be evicted and the house would be gone. And so none of that, I didn't get any of that kind of object permanence with any of my stuff. And as I grew older, it became to the where I'm, I am now today a very, very easily satisfied person materially. Like I don't need, I don't, I don't want a lot of stuff materially. I don't keep a lot of stuff. I'm not a collector. I, I, if I have something and you like it, I'm free giving it to you. Like it, that kind of stuff, because I don't, to me, the material things are very ephemeral and it's the experience is where it is. So when I give presents to my kids, I give them concert tickets and I give, I give experiences. You'll have memories because the material stuff isn't going to matter. And that, that was like beat into me early, early on, that, that, that all of the reality can shift instantly. And I think that not having that, to, to have any kind of stability can make you lose so much of yourself. That's why I valued Mike so much, because Mike was, I call him my island of normal in an ocean of chaos. Like I was sloshing around in this giant sea that was I didn't have any control over, and then was flipping back and forth. But he was always there. He, he, I, I memorized his phone number because his parents never moved. So everywhere I would bounce from place to place, he was home base. And if I came back to Colorado, I knew I had, ex- I knew exactly where I could go that I could have a, a meal and a shelter and someplace that a friendly conversation for a bit, even if it was only for a day or two. And like, I had a, a, a friend there. And it was the only one everywhere else. I had people that said they were friends, but they just wanted to watch me blow up. And, and, or I had people that wanted to, that wanted to look at me like I was a project. I was either at that time, something to be feared or something to be fixed. And neither one of those are a person. And Mike was the only one that saw me as a person and as someone that actually deserves it.
1: Earlier, you talked about bullying when you're growing up as a teenager. Is it fair to say that the root cause of most, if not all school shootings is bullying?
2: No. No, I wouldn't say that. I would say that the root cause of it is pain. I would say that that the base of a lot of these destructive things are I'm not good enough and I'm going to burn my world apart to make myself fit. And that pain at the bottom of it when, when you get to that level, there really isn't any difference in that pain as there is with when, there isn't any difference in the pain that I was feeling when I was going to shoot up a school and the pain that a model feels when she's in, the car, in a car throwing up in a cup before her photo shoot. There's not a difference there. It looks like two different species, looks like two entirely different animals. At the bottom of it, it's that same sense of self-immolation that I'm not good enough. I'm going to burn me apart. And, and uh, when, we're, when we're grown up early on, We're taught how to express our pain differently and we use different languages to express that pain. I call it the languages of depression. When, when, as a boy, violence is currency. When when you're a boy and you're early on in school, you can be dumb, you can be ugly, you can be smelly, if you can break something, you can exist. If if you're strong enough to break something, that's social currency in the male world, early on, from the earliest of, of ages. So as you're growing up and you learn to speak that language, if the language that you're taught at home reinforces that, and if like for me, I was taught lying and stealing and, 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 and aggression. And if you're taught that early on and that coincides with the aggression that you feel that you need to express when you're a kid that, to keep yourself from, to, to, from falling down into the social pit, then that will, that vocabulary of depression will grow as you get older. And boys tend to express themselves more violently because of that. We get more aggressive. We get more destructive. Whereas females, women tend to get more introspective. It's more that I'm not good enough inside. I bought my, I'm not good enough. They don't like me for me. So I need to change my body. I need to change my insides. I need to change my hair, my weight. I'm uh, that kind of self-destructive, but it's still the same. It's still on the same tree. It's just different languages. So if you take, if you look at, if you ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, we're at the very bottom of you need to establish the thing that I fell off the cliff of when I and when I talk about Mike, that I you need to establish the very bottom of of I need to be able to to eat, breathe, live, sur- base survival, in order to want something. If I want something, I can dream for something, and if I can dream for something, I can aspire for something. Take that concept of the pyramid, flip that upside down. Take that same triangle and just flip it going on down to a point, that bottom point is pain. That bottom point is I'm not good enough. And I'm not, I'm not enough for me. And as that expresses and grows up, that tops plane, that top flat part, that's where all the different languages express themselves, where we have the pain of the model in the car, the pain of me in this side, the pain of the gangbanger who's trying to fit into his clique, the pain of the businessman who's embezzling and has a massive alcoholism because he's trying to fit into his own corporate world that, all of these look like they're different species, but if we can see that at the bottom of it, it's really the same language, then maybe we can start having more of a bipartisan attitude towards it. Because I've had the same conversations about this pain with every walk of life, whether it's atheist, Republican, Democrat, religious, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what, who, what spectrum you're from. You feel that pain inside yourself.
1: We almost always hear interviews after a mass shooting in which people say, I knew that guy was weird, or I'm not surprised he did it. What's the answer to identifying potential shooters before they become actual mass murderers?
2: Listening to the people in the dark. That's the key. And it's, it's first off, remember this fact that nobody ever starts in the pitch black. Nobody ever starts in the pitch black. Even the worst monster you can think of got there. It was a journey even someone like Dahmer started as a kid he didn't he didn't end up as a monster by starting there you know that's the kid who the the kid who's like the parkland shooter didn't start at at three years old ready to shoot the school you know there's a life that get there's a whole gradient level of progression that takes you to that spot and while there are there is a small amount of people that will follow through with that act. The very sl- small, small of people that are going to follow through with the violent act. There's a large gray amount of people that think that they could, should, or might. And those are the people that we absolutely can reach. And we can do it by listening to them in their own, when, when they're screaming out when they're pain. When, when I was, when I would bounce from school to school, if I had that one counselor who actually saw me as a person, then maybe I would have a bit of a connection. But my problem was I was also had the added, uh, problem of being shuffled away from that assistance as soon as it tried to to get in but the one thing that saved me was consistent kindness and that saw me as the person and not a project because that it's equally depersonalizing to see someone as a threat and as a project If, if you see the person underneath the pain see see the me that's behind the screaming language of depression that i'm yelling at you if you can look past that and see the me underneath it then we can talk Like for a counseling, if you go to a counselor and you have the counselor who has the the checklists and the the systems and the programs, that could turn into white noise immediately. You're just, I'm just a product to you. But you go to a counselor on the other side, it's like, oh, you like that band? I like that band. Let's jam out for a while. Then after that, you can get the same checklist, the same process, the same systems. You're just listening now because now this person is a human. And this person sees me as a human and I'm not just his job. I'm not just a checklist. So the biggest key I can give someone is to just listen. Remember that you feel that pain too. And that it's, that there's just different levels of it.
1: Well, I want to personally thank Mike for seeing you as a person. So thank you, Mike.
2: Yeah. We've
1: been talking to Aaron Stark and we'll be right back after a short break.
0: If you're struggling to understand your self worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today.
1: Are you looking for life's answers? How about the meaning of true self?
0: Your world, motivate, change, succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to one 888 346 9141 That's one 888 Three four six nine one four one, or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: we are back i'm chris meek host of next steps forward And my guest today is aaron stark aaron is a public speaker he described his life experience in the ted talk i was almost a school shooter and he has formed a group to help troubled youngsters and prevent them from turning to violence Aaron, in the first part of the show, you talked about turning yourself into social services. You told us how that went. I imagine you have some suggestions to improve the social services system to better protect children, especially as homeless teenagers. Can you share some of those ideas?
2: I do have some good ideas for that, I believe. Um, First off, I think that separating the children from the parent to do the interview is massively important, especially when the parent has is potentially the abuser that I, I, if that would have happened in that incident, my whole story might have ended up differently. Um, They having more and more open areas for, for people to go into counseling without having potentially life exploding um, responses. Like I I described going into counseling for a kid in depression, like walking into a room full of spikes that are all pointed inside like you, you, you don't know that one thing that you might say when you're venting could potentially cause a mandatory reporter to have to say something that could blow up your whole existence. And like I was talking about speaking the language of depression, if at your home the only thing you're taught is anger and, and, and insults and how to deal with, with, with depression is by lashing out, then when you go reach out for help, if that's what you do when you're first reaching out for help, and you you're try, let's say, let's say you're a kid who's, who's raised in that kind of environment I was raised in and you go to a counseling office and you sit down and you're like, man, on my head, I, I just feel like I just want to blow up the world. That instantly could cause a ton of instant reports that, that could, 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 could blow up your entire living situation without full investigation. And it could just be that you're just trying to vent without knowing the proper vocabulary with how to vent that it they're, and and it's very perilous. It's a sad fact, but even if you're, if you're living in hell, that hell can be normal. It can be your only thing you have. And the thought of exploding that can be so so terrifying that you just avoid the help altogether. So the chance of having that happen, that you say the wrong thing that's then going to cause like even though it would have potentially been a benefit to me, if I would have reached out for help thinking, if I would have reached out for help and thought at any time that, that help was going to cause my own mom to go to jail because of what was what I was going through, then I would have avoided that help entirely. And that would have been, been struck off the list because it's going to blow up my only world I have. I'm a teen. I don't, I don't have anything else to go to. I don't have any other supports. You know, when you're going you put me in the system, like that's, there has to be a middle ground where we can you can equalize it. Because once you do have that middle ground and once you're able to equalize the equation, then you can actually see on both sides the necessity for whatever measures need to be had. Like like if you had a situation like mine where you really did need to be removed from the home and you need and this needs to happen, you can equalize that in conversation. And have and, and be able to accept that, yes, now we need to move forward and, and we need to, to address this on a, on a much more strict, much more professional level. We need to actually address this with authorities and, have, and, and go through that route. Or you could assess on that front that this is a kid who's just trying to express, who's been taught a really crappy way on how to express his own emotions, and I need to assess it in that level. And having that be, instead of turning it into a room full of spikes, make it just a more soft landing. And you can accomplish the same kinds of goals. You can accomplish the same kind of, of, of overwatch, but without so much resistance and so much fear from the people trying to reach out for help in the first place. The, it, because it's, so, it's such, so fearful. That's the biggest, that's the hardest obstacle I have when a kid who's reaching out to me for assistance or reaching out to my group that's, that is just screaming out for help. And we try to send them to a counselor, it's hard to get them to even go to a counselor because they either can't, they don't think the counselor is going to listen or the counselor is going to blow up their whole world because the counselor does, is trying to, to overreach. And it's hard to have that kind of middle ground where both sides can see the person as a person because it's just as important for the counselor to see the, the person in pain as a person as it is for the person in pain to see the counselor as a person. That normalizes the equation. If if you don't normalize that equation, then you're just going to talk right past each other. And then the help is, is useless in the first place.
1: When and how did the idea of attacking your school come to your mind?
2: That formulated with, so the, the attacking the school and attacking the mall food court, it's important to note that neither one of those places were actually the targets. That was the damage that was going to cause my targets to hurt. The targets was actually going to make my parents creating, deal with creating a monster. I wanted, to deal, I wanted to make my parents deal with making me. And so I was going to cause as much damage as I possibly could and die while doing it. And it's important to note also that both of those places, neither one of them were what we would describe as soft targets. There were armed uniformed police officers in North High at all times. It was pre-metal detector days, but it was still gangs all over the place. There was cops in the school all the time. And there was literally a police station in the mall, a couple doors down from the food court. So it was just factored into the plan. I was going to go in the attack and die by suicide by
1: cop. Most people would be horrified to think those thoughts, but you said before that they create a sense of calm in you. Do you think that's how it is for other young men who eventually go through the mass shooting?
2: So the calmness came from embracing the darkness. The the, the It's, 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 the scary calm at the end happens when you literally don't have anything left. When you lose all your supports and when you've lost all grasp of your humanity and when you hit that very bottom level of depression, it's very calm. Because what are you going to do? You're going to cut my arm off? I'm going to die. You're going to put me in jail? I'm going to. They're going to feed me. Like I don't have any more down. And that's the scariest place to have someone at that's this place where they can do anything there isn't anything they can lose and and it's important to remind people that they actually do have things that are, have worth and in order to have something to have worth that means you care when it's gone and that when and when you have nothing at all that you don't that you care if it's gone including your own existence that's a really really terrifying place to be Uh, the the comforting thing in the beginning of wrapping that darkness around me like a blanket and using it like a shield when I describe it like a comforting calmness in my darkness that happens when you find that there is depression is seductive chaos is seductive that kind of darkness is seductive for a while it's also extremely self-destructive and non-self-sustaining so you you Everybody wants to be the lead, the lead character in their own movie. When you're, when you, in the beginning of life, we're just searching for your own identity. If your identity is, I'm the evil dark one that everybody looks at like I'm some kind of unicorn. For a little bit, that gives you a little bit of, yeah, I'm somebody. People are looking at me until you see what they're looking at, and then it just turns and it spirals down. And so it, you. In order to exist in that world, you people can tend to, and I did, embrace that identity and use it as a shield. Like, yeah, I'm the dark one. Yeah, I'm the evil one. What are you gonna do about it? Like, I'm will you wanna want me to prove it to you, I'll be toxic to you too. And and that and it's just performative toxicity. And we see it right now in our in our social media. We see that performative toxicity all over the place. People that the, the nowadays we we have what I call the negative social economy, where we have People who will tell you how to be a bully, then give you tips on being a better bully, and then give you rewards for being the best bully, and then give you accolades for being the absolute best one. And so you get the same kind of of social adulation that you're craving. I, I really believe at the heart of it that everybody wants to be held and told that you're okay. We all just want to be held and told we're okay. And if you're getting that by someone saying you're going to be okay, but to be okay, you have to be terrible to that guy, then you're going to be terrible. And that, that's, that social cycle happens. Take, for example, let's, let's look at examples of we have like, – take, take me. Okay? Take what I'm doing now. What I'm doing now, I go around and I speak about mental health. I give, I give public awareness. I'm just a regular guy. And since I'm doing that, I get social accolades in the sense that people want to have me on their podcast. Occasionally get to be on TV. Occasionally get to do a cool interview and get to fly out to go speak to people. And, yeah, I get to do cool stuff because I'm being nice and helping people out. So this positive world – I get cool accolades for that. Now, look, look at the negative mirror of that. Let's say that you're somebody who is harassing an abortion clinic enough to where they close. Or you are harassing an FBI office and, and, and trying to attack the agents inside of the FBI office. Okay. Now, in the so- negative social economy, there's going to be the people who are going to be rewarding you for that and applauding you for that. And if you're really, really good at it, you're going to get the celebrity of you're the best one at it. And the whole social neg- negative social world is going to know who you are. And the 4chan's and the, and the incel groups and the Reddits and the, the, all the YouTube forums, they're all going to know who you are. And all those, that's, you're going to get that same social adulation. And those places are not islands. And those aren't unconnected. It's a giant social web network that is working. And it's, you, you get the same kind of thing. And I, I, that's my biggest, my personal biggest opponent right now doing what I'm doing is that negative social account that they're, I'm trying to bring people out of the darkness by saying you matter and that you can make it. And that they're, we need to give love to the ones that we feel deserve at the least because they need it the most. And the people on the edge, we can, we can pull them back in and show them that they matter and that they can belong. And they're saying, no, no, no. The edge is where you want to be. You want to come off the edge and into the dark. Because over here in the dark, this is where everybody agrees with you. And that right there, that's the battle.
1: School shooters are obviously in a great deal of emotional pain. And I've heard so many people say, why don't you just shoot himself? Or why do you have to kill anyone else? You've lived with suicidal ideations and thoughts of killing others. What do you think is the answer to those questions?
2: Languages of pain scream out differently. The, the, you also cannot impose logic on an insane ch- person after the fact. You, the When I was doing what I was doing, I was an insane kid in an insane situation doing insane things. And you can't look back on that logically and say, well, why didn't you go this way? And well, because that didn't exist to me, you know, like that's pe- people have, I people have a want to have closure and they, have, they really want to have, I want to be able to make sense of this kind of thing. And I, you want to be able to wrap your hands around it. And there's some things that you can't make sense of. And that's, in order to understand it, you have to understand that you can't make sense of it, which is the only way to make sense. of it. That you you have to understand the obliqueness of the situation. But it's, per, pain is personal and individual. And if you think that there's a stereotype of a shooter, you're wrong. If, if you think that there, there's a person who, that kid looks like he's a school shooter, examine why, what made you think that's what that looks like, because it's probably a kid screaming out in pain, hey, help me. And your own, color, your own perceptions and your own fears have colored that. And like I've said many times, it's equally depersonalizing to be a monster as to be a project, equally depersonalized.
1: You eventually went to the people who had hurt you, not in a confrontational or accusatory way, but to tell them the way their actions had affected you. Why was that important or necessary for you to do, you know, and why don't you just say out of hell with them and never think about them again?
2: Because it was important uh, to me. I called out my acknowledgement phase, and I did, I went to the people that hurt me and I, I, it wasn't to say you did this and you need to pay and, or any of that. It was that this is our, this is our situation. Now our relationship is fundamentally changed. It's different. And that's just the way it is. And it wasn't about, it wasn't at all about their response. it was about getting it off of me. It was about releasing it from my own, off of my own psyche, that I have I have done that. I don't have the things where I wish I would have said that. I don't have the, the, the regrets that, that can build up about how, man, if I could have just said that one thing to that person, they, they would have known how I felt. No, I said it. Now you know how I felt. And now I can move forward. Having said that, that's done now. And now I don't have to sit and dwell about, well, if I would have said that, they would know this. No, no, I said it and they know it. And now I can move on. And now there's other things in life that don't involve that. And to me it was an important cathartic moment because I saw I saw so much so much of that toxicity just spiraling and spiraling and spiraling. And it just continues and it festers and you it's that backbiting this person insulted me so i need to insult them back and now that's happening now they're going to insult me back and it's just a complete cycle back and forth and i call it, i tell my kids it's the contest it's what we call it in my house it's the contest there's no need to be involved in the contest there's there's no need to be involved in that social contest step out of that contest say, okay you want to win you can win in your own world you don't want to like me don't like me from that side of the room that's perfectly fine and you're, you're okay and I'm going to just keep on doing what I'm doing. And as long as you understand that I don't care about what you're feeling, then we're good. And and in order to not care, you actually have to not care. Like that's, that's an important people say, I don't care what you're feeling when in reality you're sitting there, you're stewing about it. You're like, no, I, I don't care, man. They're, they're going to, if I could just, no, no, I, I just don't care. I don't care about you now and I'm done. And to me, that was an important step. I went to them like, no, I'm sorry. I don't love you. That's done now. And I'm going. And it, and they would, sometimes they would yell, sometimes they would cry, sometimes they would get all angry and I didn't care. It wasn't about their response. It was about me saying it and then go, I'm done. And it was, re, it was like a weight lifted off of me. I was able to escape that cycle of backbiting regression and repression and, and infighting. And I was able to step out of it.
1: After the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida on February 14th, 2018, in which a 19-year-old killed 17 people and wounded 17 others in the course of six minutes and eight seconds. You applied to share your story. I was almost a school shooter on the TEDx, TED Talks platform. Why did you take on the mass shooting for you to apply?
2: So actually, it was, it was a bit of a process to get to the TED Talk. So I we were watching the Parkland massacre the day after. I was watching it with my wife and my oldest daughter. And we were having a big tearful cry about how could someone ever do this? How could you ever get to that point? And then I was, as they were crying about talking about that, I was watching also on the TV and a girl came on a student from the school and it looked like she still had blood on her from the attack. And a reporter was asking her, how did that make you feel? And I was just enraged. Like that, that's the most depersonalizing thing. Like how, how do you think it made her feel? And so I literally went to the toilet and wrote a Facebook post. I sat on the toilet, wrote a Facebook post. And that's the first time I came out with, I I was almost a school shooter. That was the opening line of the the Facebook post. And by the time I came out the toilet, my wife and my daughter had read it. And at that point, my wife only knew about 60% of my story. My daughter only knew about 20% of my story. And so that day was a big tearful revelation talk with me about my history and everything that I actually had in my life. And up until that point, I thought it was going to be a negative. I thought that if anybody ever found out of this about me, there would be like a millstone around my neck. People would hate me and I'd be an outcast. Like it would be another dark mark on me. And I went to bed and I woke up and that Facebook post went Facebook viral. We got a couple thousand, couple, couple hundred likes and shares on Facebook. And my wife's like, Hey, You might want to send this to our local news reporter here in Denver, Kyle Clark, who does Channel 9 News. We watch him every night, and they're doing this thing about mental health at the time because of the shooting. And so I sent it to him over Twitter, and the very next day, they had a camera crew at my house to film me reading that Facebook post. And that video got 17 million views in a week. And I went from a dude sitting on my couch thinking that if anybody ever found this out, they would hate me, to getting messages from literally all over the planet that weren't just, hey, that's a cool story, but it was, hey, that's a cool story, and here's everything that ever happened to me. Here's all my pain and all of the – I got diaries from people all over the planet, everywhere. And that's when I started my You Are Not Alone group, and which turned into initially a place to put everybody at, so on Facebook, so where everybody responding to me, that's where they could go like filter it. And that ended up becoming full of counselors and doctors and therapists and people in pain and giving them that little bit of a buffer spot where they can talk openly about this stuff. And a guy can get on there and vent and get a response from a therapist who's just a person. And you're just talking like a person, but you're actually an actual doctor and you know what you're talking about. And so you get the professional response with the personal approach and able to actually push it up to a professional response if need be. Like, if you really need to talk to an actual therapist right now, we can get you someone to try, at least try to help you get to where you can go. And so that's how that ended up going. And then as out of that, one of the people in my Facebook group was like, hey, you should apply for a TED Talk. And so I did. And at the same time, I also have to say, I also went through a big physical change at the same time. And when I started my journey, I was 500 pounds. Oh yeah! When I first wrote my Facebook post, I was 500 pounds, and today I'm about 260. Wow! Yeah, I have lost about 200 240 pounds about, and both from weight loss and from weight loss surgery, a gastric sleeve surgery. And on the stage of my TED talk, under my shirt, I had bandages from my weight loss surgery. I literally did them all in the same month, and so that's it. Just came very cathartic i didn't expect the ted talk to be as impactful as it was and then all of a sudden it just blew right up and now i get to talk to people all over the planet and try to help them find they issue that they matter
1: and i guess just still
2: still still also work full-time at a gas station so
1: knowing how much you went through physically mentally how long you endured that to your point a moment ago you mentioned your wife knew 60 percent, your daughter knew 20 yeah, people from all over the planet reaching out to you. Do you ever regret sharing your story so publicly?
2: No, no. And it's cost me a lot. It's not, it hasn't all been good. There's been a bunch of negatives to it that came with it. Like my family stopped talking to me. My, my, my mom is still alive. My, and my brother, and my sisters and all that, my aunts, they, they all stopped talking to me. Not because I am saying something wrong, but because I'm talking about the family. Like I'm talking about it publicly. And so my response is always, well, first off, I'll stop the you tell me one thing I'm saying that's not the truth. And if you're mad about me talking about the truth of what happened 25 years ago, but you're not paying attention to who I am today, then I'm not the one that has an issue. And so that's, it. I've lost friends. It made it hard to get a job. It made it hard to go the, when, when I was, I, I, I'm i the kind of person that I, I, like they say in that movie, Wayne's World, I have an extensive collection of name tags and hairnets. And so I've worked food service a lot. And so when I would go to a food service job, I would normally be like, oh, will you will you please be our manager? Okay, well, let, we'll please, you take over the restaurant. And so that's usually where I was. I have a long resume of food service. So easy to get a job in that industry. And then all of a sudden, I was trying to apply for jobs. And the places that normally would jump all over it weren't. And I was like, well, what's going on? And I asked one of them, like, well, we Googled you. So... Okay. You first, if first thing, if you Google, first thing that comes up is I was almost a school shooter. But if you don't click on the link and see, again, if you don't look at the person beyond the label, and if you don't scratch the surface to see who I am beyond what you think that it is, then you might it'll be off-putting and it might be repulsive. But if you scratch the surface, you actually see that it's me. And so it's, it it costs a lot, but I would never, I wouldn't change it for the world. I've been able to help. I have an inbox full of messages of people saying that somehow I've helped them keep breathing for another day. And that's all I need. I'll keep on going as long as as, if I can help someone like that, then I'll keep on going until they don't have a voice.
1: We have just a short time left. What's your call to action for our audience?
2: Give love to the ones that you feel deserve it the least because they need it the most. That one that you think of that is different as the other that it looks separate than you has way more in common than you could ever imagine. And remember that we are all going through this life together and we can make it through it together. And you are not alone.
1: You are not alone. And again, where's the Facebook Facebook group? Where can they find you?
2: It's You Are Not Alone. It's all one word, uh, it's all put together. You are not alone. Um, you can find me on Twitter at StarkDad1313. I'm also on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook. Um, uh, Google me, I'm all over the place
1: <laughs> Aaron Stark, thank you for being with us today and sharing your story of despair turned to hope and inspiration I really appreciate your time
2: Thank you for having me, it's an honor to be on here today
1: and Thank you to our audience for tuning into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward I'm Chris Meek, for more details about upcoming shows and guests please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash chrismeekpublicfigure and on Twitter at chrismeek underscore USA We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with our leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.